Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. How are you? I'm okay. It's I, I think I you know I just mentioned on our pre-call, which we don't normally do, no. <laughs> that uh, it's a blizzard here in Toronto right now. How is it in New York? How do do you like the do you like the coziness of the winter and being trapped inside and the higa? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the Higa is nice. I actually turned on... Uh, the Higa like, is strong in Toronto. The Higa is strong. I just turned on, like, I have a warm, really dim, warm light over this table that I'm sitting at. I just turned it on because I was like, got a Higa up this place. Yeah. I think <laughs> we're both lucky that we're in a place with really large windows so that we don't need the sad lamp in the winter. <clears throat> totally. Yeah. I, it's one of the reasons I, I can't really... I, I'm still living in a back. tiny... Well, I can't. I can't move. You know, I feel no, like I'll never I, find as much. I have light. friends who who lived in the same building here in the lofts, and then they actually bought a place which was way more expensive than where I am now. But it's more a normal apartment with the regular sized windows. That he said it really misses the light, and uh, yeah, it was kind of a, a. They have more floor space but less light, so yeah, light is important. It is the most important thing. Yeah. yeah. And my par- I grew up in a family where my parents like just put, they're like put a sliding glass door on it. That was their like policy for whatever. Any, Any renovation or house or thing that they did, they're like, yeah, tear that down, put up glass, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And it spoiled me to the point now where the, when they put up like a sliding glass door, I'm like, why did you even put the the door frame is distracting? Why can't we just have that? Yeah. Get my into dad, that Apple My dad also kind of. in his house in Amsterdam, he, had, he put in a sliding glass door and he, his dream was that they would invent some kind of electric wall like some kind of energy that you don't see and it's just you know it's so funny because like um i helped my sister um or i I prodded her to buy like a country property this uh like a cottage this last week and it's like a a tiny little log cabin tiny house Uh, style it was like yeah it was built in the 1960s like it's just like crisscrossed logs like something like a cartoon of a cabin or something like like that you'd see it at disney world yeah yeah, and then like in the windows, there's like two tiny windows. <laughs> like it's yeah, just this so the dark. Yeah, so the idea is you're always shell. outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. you're not supposed to spend time in this tiny cabin. You're supposed to get outside. Yeah, like it's, exactly. That is kind of it. If if you have an a house outdoors and it's like to be away from the computer and screen life and Zoom life, then maybe that is a good idea. Yeah, for the rest of us though, you know, we want our car to have a glass roof. Like a Tesla should have a glass roof. Is but that what you got? The one with the glass roof? They all have glass roofs. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. And then, but then you want, like, but then every car manufacturer now is like, oh, yeah, of course, the glass roof. Like, that's the standard thing. Where, yeah. You know, doesn't that get really hot? I think they tinted and stuff like that. Oh, but you're, okay. you're right. That's the main issue against glass. You know, there used to be a window tax because it was always considered a luxury, but it's also a luxury because. Um, the heat, you know, and cold, it's harder. It's not a great insulator, right? Yeah. Like you have yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, this, this could become the new glass podcast. But I was just talking to a friend, and he said there's a shortage of windows uh, in Canada anyway, <laughs> because and he can't get windows for his house More because trouble. because it, because of COVID. There's so much window installation, so much like I like the, uh, it renovation. Reminds me of this song, uh, like when you watch the news now, it's a, a band called The Sounds, like a sort of early post punk band. They have this song. Uh, more trouble coming every day. As mm. I just keep repeating, it's just more trouble coming every day. <laughs> and now it's a window shortage. But it's a very cheerful melody, so that makes it funny. Yeah. 
I think here though it's just because everything's glass. It's a it's a weird. We're living in the cookie cutter kind of city. Like Canadian cities are just um, glass cities. <laughs> you mean that it's it's that ideal of the the very contemporary towers that are a lot of light and everybody wants that. Yeah, that's just all there is. Like yeah, there's nothing yeah. else. Yeah. yeah. So, but in speaking of contemporary, <laughs> let's let's are, go back to 1995. Well, it's ninety-seven actually. I was oh, trying okay. to I was trying to place it as well, and I asked Alexa. I was like, "Hey, when was uh, oops, uh, when was Starship Troopers made?" Yeah, and she was like, uh, "Nineteen uh, in, in the nineteen eighties." And I was like, "It was a really vague answer. <laughs> I, oh. like, I don't think so." No. And uh, yeah, it came out when I was in high school, and I I don't know what your did you go see this movie in the theaters? I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I did see it around that time. Like but like, okay, this is our, on, isn't this our year. first? This is our first Dutch director. Not only, not only Dutch director, like, uh, but like, yeah, like it, this seems like a Raphael Rosendahl must see movie as a teenager. Or something yeah, like, like formative, like in my sense of humor or the way I see things or the sarcasm or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is like, okay. Well, well, Raph, we can preface gonna... this a little bit by saying that th- I think. Dutch culture is just not that good at drama. It's just kind of a very direct, down-to-earth culture. So it doesn't lend itself to theater and storytelling. And that's why I think they're, you know, they seem good at engineering and maybe architecture and all this kind of stuff. But they're not internationally known as a great movie country. Um, So Paul Paul Verhoeven (laughs) is, as far as I know, the most successful director and one of the few that really broke through in Hollywood. And he did Robocop and Total Recall and Basic Instinct and Showgirls and then this one as well. He did some Dutch movies before and then uh, his, I think his wife motivated him. She's like, we got to get out of here. You got to make it big. And uh, and when he moved to America, though, like famously, the reason I think it's like it's just so much like you is he was shocked, shocked at like the things that he saw in movies like that they were also true of the yeah. American people. Yeah. It's like, oh, these fridges really are this big. Yeah. But one of the and things re- I remember he said when, when he came to Hollywood, because at the time there was a bunch of uh, artistic European directors moving to Hollywood and Antonioni and uh, Ingmar Bergman and, you know, and they all still held on to their European film identity. And he said someone at the airport just talked to him like, not a colleague or anything, just someone. And he's like, oh, you're new here. You know what you got to do? You got to go with the flow. And so he was very adamant. He's like, I'm not a European director now. I'm an American director. So he just, he said, I'm a good B-movie director. He just shot these really weird B-movies that when you see them, you're like, oh, there's actually a lot more going on here than the, the just the gunshots. I don't know that much, but I think in... In the Netherlands, the the government was like, "We're not going to fund your movies anymore because they're too violent. Um, like they're not, or there's not enough plot or meaning." To them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I like this state of mind where you you think, "Oh, this guy is not thinking, and he's actually thinking more than the people who are overtly thinking." <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we should maybe um, stand up the premise of the film, or at least it's hard. Like, I don't know how to go at this. Should we like? Well, there's the, the, there's the straightforward yeah. story, and then there's the way, the way you want to see it. The meta commentary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, the it's basically a space invasion of aliens. That's the, the the plot, and then you follow some heroes who take care of business. Is that the but plot? The, 
Yeah, except that the true plot is the the heroes themselves are the the aliens invading another planet. Yeah, yeah. So they provoke the aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's basically the story but is that's, like that's like every war in history is like, oh who was the bad guy but everybody's bad. And... Yeah, I mean let's put it like it's a they're 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 these Amer- and they're not Americans actually they they come out of Buenos Aires which I think is kind of interesting right. Well, like, it's the 23rd century, so probably there's a, a sort of united federation of uh, two continents, and so Buenos Aires is sort of feels like a a high school in. Uh, Safe like by the Bell no. or Beverly yeah. Hills 90210. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, including it's, actual cast no, members. No one's of speaking Spanish. Uh, let's put it that way. Yeah, and everyone's super beautiful. Like, well, they they're cast not even, at the yeah, time. The, 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 the casting is funny because I read they wanted to also sort of show the ridiculousness of war. And a lot of war soldiers are 18, but they cast people who are like 25. I know. I had school. to look it up because I was like, because Denise Richards is like a famous person in it. Yeah, um, she's not famous anymore. I think her last gig was on like the Real Housewives, but um, at the time, like she was like the it, like an it girl or something. And I was like, how old was she? Like she's supposed to be in high school, but then I looked. She's like ten years older than I am, right? So she, um, but she, that's I guess always she must, been the case. In almost high thirty movies, in that movie that they, that they cast people eight years older than their role. But I read Verhoeven wanted to like. Uh, he wanted to cast younger people, but the yeah the the studio was like no like people no, would think that's because weird. The, that's that's the reality of war. There's really eighteen year olds in the military, and when when you're eighteen, you feel like yeah, I look at all those kids that are fourteen. I'm I'm uh, an adult now. But when mm-hmm. you're when you're forty and you see an eighteen year old, you're like whoa, that's a child. <laughs> yeah. So I I think that's part of why they've always cast. If you watch movies like. Revenge of the Nerds, or all those movies, all the actors are way older, or, or American Pie, or I don't know if more contemporary like an, teen movies they really used. What was that? It's one? like our our image of ourselves. Super as bad. Youth is they, they seemed really accurately like um, accurately young. Yeah, I, I, like maybe that's a, a more modern thing where we're like used to more mm. realism in that sense. Yeah. Anyway, um, these young people do. But go not, to war not only against... are they. I just want to make a point. Not only yeah. do they look sort of stereotypically handsome, they look exaggerated. Like Casper uh, Van Dien, who like never really had a big role after this. He has a ridiculous chin. Like it, like it was rendered and somebody extruded his chin. And then Denise Richards seems to have had so much surgery and uh, like her face does not have a lot of expression. It's always in this one expression. Mm-hmm. She just has this smile, and then she has this really weird caricature of a pointy nose. I don't know if that's her natural puffy nose. lips, yeah, uh, uh, big boobs and whatever. And it seems like he really went for like, um, well, someone was saying it kind of feels like Saved by the Bell, but then with aliens. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think that that and, you and, know. and, and that's not an accident. He cast someone from Saved by the Bell for Showgirls. So. Yes, that's right. But I think also in this film. He wanted to evoke, and it, it's an interesting thing to talk about a little bit, like like Nazi aesthetics, and um, ultimately, like I yeah, think he, there's a certain. I think he like, really. There's all these promo inserts in the movie where they promote the military and they say uh, sign up and uh, become a citizen and etc. And they say stuff like, uh, but but he he took those shot for shot from Nazi Leni Riefenstahl movies and just recreated them with sort of Saved by the Bell aesthetics. 
That's right. Yeah, they're literally taken from Nazi films. But I, I think I mentioned this before, and I, I think it's easy to say... Triumph of the Will is the one, yeah, I think. I think it's mm-hmm. easy to say America is obsessed with violence, but we watched Battle Royale and other movies, and I think many countries, there's a thing where violence is very photograph- uh, photogenic. Like, think yeah, about so that you're, for a you're, second. You're, there's a few things to unpack, though, first. Like, yeah. A, this movie is extremely violent, like, to the point where, like, arms are being flung everywhere. The bugs are, like, cutting people's heads off. Yeah, and, they suck out the people's brains. And the television broadcasts on news are showing just, like, <laughs> mangled bodies everywhere. So it's exaggerated, and it's quite hilarious at points. So you're laughing out loud at it. B, yeah, Christina was kind of like, we were watching it together, and the first, the first third of the movie, it's the sort of the high school vibe, and she was... But when it got gory, I was like, this is so ridiculous, the gore, that you don't, you're not scared. But she's like, ah, I don't really want to watch this. I'll watch something else. Yeah, Kristen didn't want to watch it either. But, 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 I think, but yeah. to me, it seemed like a, it, it, it's not like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you're really like, ah, do I need this stress right now? It, this silly. was less stressful to watch than Uncut Gems. Yeah, it's super silly. I mean, this is the thing that I wanted to get to, which is obviously like, you know, Paul Verhoeven's trying to like it's sati- it's satire. I w- when I was going to see this movie as a kid, no one was presenting to me as satire. No, no. And I had no idea it was satire when I sat down in the movie theater. But isn't that the same with cartoons as a kid? And you don't understand everything, and you think it's the good guys, bad guys, and you see it twenty years later, and you're like, oh, there are all these layers that I wasn't aware. But of. how could the the? Cause I know the critics even at the time didn't recognize it as satire. So I know how could the a critics movie... are, are, are stupid. Yeah. But how can a movie exist like that? How could it come from a director who, by the way, at that point was already 20 years into his satirical career in Hollywood, right? RoboCop, well understood as a satire of capitalism well, it really and military me, this, industrial this complex. lack of sense of humor on the left, which I consider myself part of well, I don't of the think left, it's on the left. I, th- I would just say it's like a public awareness problem. And I, I was thinking about it just in terms of, selfishly, in terms of my own career. Like, I just like launched a satirical project online and yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot you know some certain journalists and stuff would contact me about it and their first thing was like so you're going to change the way like art is distributed on the internet i was like no like <laughs> this is like satire and they're like yeah. oh and then once they once they like they got it you know but the i think maybe it's just an interesting question like you know, when we talk about Jeff well, Koons, we're all like, obviously what, Jeff Koons is satirical, but he's also a jerk. You know, is it because yeah. we don't want is the but is, what's is interesting the joke on to me, us? For example, is that so? This movie is so over the top violent, and is is even uh, moralizing violence, and it's if if you take the movie literally, yeah. it's basically one big promo clip, like violence solves everything. It's a big commercial for yeah. violence. Yeah. But what's funny is. We've been in this wave of uh, adding diversity to cast. So Star Wars has uh, heroes of different descent, different gender, etc. But they still solve everything with violence. There's no change in the in the method whatsoever. It's not like all of a sudden Star Wars, like the Empire and the Rebels, get together on a table and say, like, you know what, we should stop this fighting. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. We should we should use these resources of the Death Star and put them in education. Oh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think no Verhoeven says something like, you know, if if you ma- if I made movies about happiness and love, people would be bored to death, and so I'm going to give <laughs> yeah. the people what they want. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the go with the flow argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, you know, and I think for you, it's interesting just because, like, you, you often talk about on this podcast, like, hey, is there anything else other than violence and sex? And and Paul Verhoeven made a, a career out of saying, like, not according to 
audiences. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's all yeah. there is. Yeah. And but th- that's my point, which is like, but when he, the joke he, is on the audience, so what is the content? Over it that that it becomes a joke. Yeah. Yeah, but if the audience isn't aware of it, it's really the audience that's the joke in this case, right? But I I do think like as much as I on this podcast I argue in favor of uh, complex narratives and slow films and things like that. Mm-hmm. Of Verhoeven, I did watch only his violent movies, and he made a couple of more art house movies, and I never watched those. So maybe not in general slow movies are more, but Verhoeven is just better at violent films. So that's possible that he, in particular, would not be good at making something like Il Posto. Like no, I mean he has a shtick, right? Yeah, like, and and so I'm he, not could, asking he could him to argue that that's what the audience wants, but maybe that's also his talent. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to discuss the merits of whether it's good or bad. I just think you know the the construct of okay, I'm going to make a thing that makes fun of a thing, like a an entire genre of movie making, yeah. which is like commercial cinema, right? Because he, you know, let's but say he, he did. But like, he needed the resources of commercial cinema to make fun of commercial cinema. He couldn't yeah. do it outside of the system. And I think that's one of the exceptional things about his career is that he. Yeah. This was a movie that cost a hundred million dollar to hundred million dollars or something to make. By the way. You know, similar amount was just spent on the the, the on Tenet, the latest Nolan film, right? Mm, so Starship yeah. Troopers took as much money to make as a blockbuster <laughs> does today. And so the whole it thing, was a big movie at the time, yeah. Yeah, and it it was nominated for an Academy Award for special effects. When you're watching, I, it, you're like, I, I watched an interview with him, and there was something about they were changing all the. Uh, executives in in this movie studio so no one could pay attention to the movie so they just made the movie and all the time they're like yeah i'll look at it next week and then somebody changed the job and that's how it got through oh really because when you think about it it was a commercial flop uh nobody understood the joke it's like how did this ever get made well it wasn't that much of a flop i think it still brought in over 170 million dollars right yeah but it is funny imagining like young people who do want to join the military watching this movie and they're like, yeah, I'm going to join the military. Awesome. Yeah, and there's like all these ridiculous one-liners throughout the, the movie. But Rico, Rico, don't let me go. It's the same go. Uh, the movie Wall Street from the 80s with uh, Charlie Sheen and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Gordon Gecko, who's playing... Here's what, here's my, the, the whole like, thing of, of Wall Street was to show how awful Wall Street is and how greedy those people are and how bad that is for the world. And then mm-hmm. a whole generation of young people were like, I want to be Gordon Gecko. And they all yeah. went to work in Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was the same thing when even The Wolf of Wall Street came out. People were like, even though it was satire, are they glamorizing the debauchery? Yeah. But I guess, you know, I think one of the things I was going to put out there is like, could you make this movie today? No way. No way. Yeah, and I think well, people it's have lost because their, like it feels like things are so tense that uh, there's a safe zone in the middle, mm-hmm. and anywhere you go outside of that is uh, highly problematic. And uh, that also movies are now. So I was going to gl- say like lost of innocence. We have lost our innocence. Like I was thinking about my teenage self, and I was like so innocent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like now no, I'm living in a post post modernist reality think, where I question everything. I do think there are historical moments. Where in uh, there's always this this remark. I don't even know if it's true that in the Victorian age in England, if you ask someone, "Do you ever masturbate?" They're like, "Oh no way! I would go to hell for that." They had masturbation machines back then, actually. Okay, so maybe it's not true. But no, what no, I'm saying going, is yeah. there's there's different levels of public uh, puritanism. The same mm-hmm. way there was the McCarthy era, where you weren't allowed to discuss anything near communism. 
so there, it, it, there's just different modes of censorship. And right now, I think we're in a mode of censorship where you just don't want to touch certain subjects. It's just not worth the trouble. Yeah, but like Schindler's List, I think, came out like within two years of this movie as an example, right? And essentially, it's the same movie. Um, it's just like two different ways of telling the same story, right? Yeah. And um, and like and hopefully that doesn't sound unsensitive, but like honestly, I think that was Paul Verhoeven's intent. It's like we glamorize violence, and we're all capable of of killing another human being. You know, of rationalizing great yeah. pain. Yeah. And you know, and it's it's a childish aesthetic. And and you one know, of, but world. one of the things I think why we talk about this movie still today is that mm-hmm. uh, the movie succeeds to be um, a thrilling action film. Like you can watch it unironically and really be in it. Like the special effects and the story are good enough for you to accept it and and go with it for an hour and a half. <laughs> I don't know though, like because I, I that's why I said could you make it today? Because like let's take the last scene. With the there's a brain bug <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sucks the, the brains brain bug, out of yeah. people to get it's like the smart the, bug, <laughs> smart bug, yeah. And Doogie Hauser, who <laughs> yeah. is like one of the head of the German command or whatever, dressed American like bug. a Gestapo officer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he puts his hand on the trapped brain bug, which they've got a huge net around it, and he says, "It's afraid." And then everyone's like, "It's afraid," and they I all know, cheer. It, and they're like, I'm "We're winning the visu- war." Visually, the movie you accepted. <laughs> Like, I feel like the spaceships and the bugs and when the brains get sucked out, it's uh, um, there's a, even Star Wars. If you watch them oh, yeah. 10 years later, you're like, oh, this looks so fake. And this but wait movie a second. somehow. Yeah. I didn't even mention in that in that scene, you've got Denise Richards, who's just who had just been punctured by a bug. You know, when the brain bug was about to suck her through brain her leg she, through her arm. She's oh, yeah. like bleeding profusely and she's got her <laughs> arms around her high school buddies and they're like did you can you believe we made it this far guys? <laughs> it's so over the top absurd that i and i think that's probably why critics read it the way they did which is like yeah. this is b movie right because nothing even makes sense but my argument is that it's not as b movie as you think like it's it's not as well made as uh like terminator 2 let's say that terminator 2 is is one of those movies where special effects and storytelling really melded powerfully and the effects didn't even age quite well like the idea of this liquid robots was sort of a clever usage of cg like cg always looks shiny so like let's make an evil thing that's completely shiny and so with the technology at the time they made something that i think holds up today this movie, you know, somehow when I was watching it, I still felt like I was in the movie. I, even though you're in, in on the joke and everything, I still think... The aesthetics hold up? Yeah, what I mean is like there's so many people who look at Hollywood movies and think these are completely ridiculous and I'm going to make an artistic statement on Hollywood in another mm-hmm. medium. So mm-hmm. whether it's a song or a sculpture and you like point out the fakeness of it all, but you do it in a medium that is much lower barrier to entry and much cheaper and easier to produce. Uh, So whether it's a song or a poem or a a painting or whatever. And Paul Verhoeven is, to my knowledge, really one of the few people who could comment on the medium itself at at its own scale. No, no, I'm really interested in this. So to comment on Star Wars at the scale of Star Wars. Yeah, no, I'm really, really interested in this. Like, you know, because I this is a... really not that far off from the violence in Star Wars. <clears throat> well, like, I used to. We were like, watching yeah. the Mandalorian, and they're just chopping heads off, and it's it like 
I'm, I'm not saying figuratively, like really chopping heads off. And it's a kid show. Yeah, it's like, like on the yeah, Disney great. Channel, which everybody mm-hmm. gets for their kids because they're like, oh, we don't want them to watch uh, dangerous stuff on YouTube. No, honestly, I think The Mandalorian is more like Starship Troopers than 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 you know. Like, and they've had some inter- inc- they've had interesting directors on you know uh, involved in that, including uh, some of our favorites on this show. Like, I, I wouldn't put down The Mandalorian uh, just in, in some like they. There's lots of issues. No, I know, but I do know that th- that, that Disney the app is sort of sold as a kid safe app. And uh, yeah, I'm just saying The Mandalorian like is kind of sits in this exceptional space within that app. But you're right. It's for kids, yeah. like the rest of the content in that app. It's a weird gem of a show. <laughs> yeah. on the Disney. It's the only reason I have a Disney Plus subscription. Okay. Um, I find it still lacking in humor. But uh, but it's like Werner Herzog's involved in it. Like, yeah, yeah. And by the way, have you watched his Asteroids thing? We should maybe cover it in a, in a future podcast. But um, Oh, is that out? Yeah, it's on Apple TV. It's, is it good? It's pretty great. We watched it last night. Yeah. Okay. But the point I wanted to to get back to was I think you're making an excellent point, which is <clears throat> you know making fun of Star Wars at the scale of Star Wars. You could argue that you know Star Wars now, as that's why I asked, could you make it today? Is making fun of itself sometimes, and when it doesn't, as an audience, we're like, come on, you got to make fun of yourself a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I was re- I recently did a project and same with James know, Bond, where the the formula of like of spying and finding physical clues is so outdated. Yeah, but you ha- like that's why there's like um, there's all kinds of like uh, genre, like different um, franchises that have spun out of that James Bond aesthetic. Um, I'm thinking of that one. Uh, the name escapes me, but like there's several, including like obviously like um, all the stuff that Mike Myers did, right? <clears throat> but like you can't like you can't exist in a world now. I think we're in a postmodern reality where you don't make fun of yourself a little bit because to be sincere is vulnerable, right? Yeah. Like you're putting yourself in a position of vulnerability. But, but recently, yeah. no, no, no. I just want to make one mention one thing, which is as an artist, like I, I'm often in, the, and I was in this conflict this this summer working on a project where I was I wanted to use I was like. I wanted to use my my full abilities. My full, like I I work in product design. I've been a designer for twenty years. I can make something look like Star Wars, right? At this point, yeah. And I was working with someone, and they're like, they're a little bit more old school, and they're like, no, I like it when it looks bad, when it's broken. That way, the audience knows and they're in on the joke. And I was like, but that's not a very good joke because yeah. it's too facile. <laughs> you you want to take easy. it further. Yeah. I, yeah. I would like for people to question their reality more than I'd like them to like. <laughs> but so, just... so your ultimate joke would be making a, an accounting software that accidentally transfers money to the poor. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. But I, yeah, but this is the thing. I love the razor's edge. And maybe that's where I think this film is most successful for its time potentially was that there probably was like, you know, one or 2% of people that were in on the joke and got yeah. it. And the reason it's aged well, you know, what is that it didn't try to play to the time. It kind of, it played to its intent, the intention well, of the film. Well, it also played to, to universal human dilemmas. So I yeah. think uh, uh, when you, same with Blade Runner, if you're thinking about like, am I a machine or am I human and what is freedom? I think those themes will always be contemporary. Mm-hmm. No, no, I think I think you're yeah. right. I think there's something I think, there. I think that's one of the dangers with the making art about current events. Yeah, that's 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 ultimately it. Like, or like for me to try and make something look amateur in 20 years, that thing that I'm trying to make look amateur today is going to look 
more amateur, but like in a in a weird way, it won't make sense anymore, right? Like, yeah. But 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 grounding it in today's reality, like yeah. using the aesthetics of I now. I remember I, I did a photo class when we were in high school with three friends of mine, and we were developing our own film and develop, printing our own photos in the dark room, all black and white, and etc. Learning, learning about lighting and contrast and all that stuff, and. I would show my, the photos to my dad and talk about photography. And I'm like, I'm trying to uh, sort of make the background less appearing and less distracting. And so I was blurring it out in the dark room, learning. Like, that was all really hard before Photoshop. And he looked at the photos and he's like, in 10 years, these will not to you be photographic experiments. There will be memories. <laughs> you know, you'll That's look back and be like, yeah. oh, we were hanging out at that area where we used to live and etc. And I won't worry about the contrast and all that stuff yeah yeah no i think that's an excellent point i'm just like going through my memory bank of all of these moments that were you know like i can remember constant tellart saying something about like a transmediality event one one year and i was like up on stage like in augmented reality as a robot dancing and there were parts of the technology that were failing some intentional some not (laughs) And he was like laughing, but everyone else was kind of like <laughs> in <Yeah>. stunned silence. <laughs> and then I went up to him later and he was like, Jeremy, like, I, you know, will people understand? And I'm not trying to like justify myself as being significant at all, actually. But I, I was like, no, this is what has to happen right now. And he was like, but no one's going to understand what you're doing. Yeah. And I don't know, like, uh, I, I, ultimately, I think that's where Starship Troopers or showgirls probably the next film that he made is even more in this camp where um it's so and showgirls was made so flimsy like the lines and the acting it reminds me of like from what i heard in an interview with him is he did so well with basic instinct that movie was such a phenomenon it was such a cultural moment after that, it, the, kind of the studio gave him a blank check and like, just do whatever you want. <laughs> and then he's like, I, he just has this character like, oh, I, I want to push it as far as and he went too far with that one. And after that, his career never really came back. Yeah, I was just thinking like, what happened after that? Is there, has there been any other? What is his most well, recent he, film? He made a movie called Black Book with Dutch actors about World War Two, And then he made a movie, I think, called L. And they're more... European movies, they were also produced in Europe, but they're also in the tone of voice. They're more European. and uh, Yeah, look, so it goes Showgirls, then it goes Black Book, you're right. And then L, which I've yeah. never even heard of. Yeah. Hollow Man, but that, no, that was in 2000, which is definitely in the same genre of like kind of B-movie stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically... I know my parents watched L and they kept saying, oh, you should see it. I think L is about a woman who's raped and then wants to just not talk about it and go on with her life and everyone around her is like... You have to fit. So it's, like a, it's different than a space bug movie. But maybe after Starship Troopers or after Showgirls, that's it. The job is done. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. like, you Where don't do you need go to go from that. Because there were well, sequels to, to Starship Troopers, but he wasn't Not by him. In yeah. Yeah. In fact, the movie is based on a book that he said he couldn't even read. It was so bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which makes you like think, why, why did you choose that book to work with? But uh, yeah. Well, he thought it was like, you know, kind of this right wing propaganda book that. And it's been made. I think it's been made into other movies prior to him even acknowledging it. To Alexa's point earlier, but but um, but I did when we just as we're talking about this, I was thinking about how uh, the the politics have pushed people away from each other, 
and people mm -hmm. can look at the same facts and interpret them very differently. And maybe this movie was a precursor of that, where someone can watch this and say like, yeah, fuck the bugs, let's kill them all. And someone is like, oh, this movie is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's where I'm, I'm kind of sitting right now, which is like, is this a moral thing to do or is it immoral or does that even matter? Because yeah, is this dangerous? It is a dangerous place to be yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you, you could accuse him of being like mean, <laughs> first yeah. and foremost, wasteful, you know, like indulging like let, indulging my question earlier types yeah exactly like what's the difference between paul verhoeven and and uh and jeff coons as an example right we're all very critical of jeff coons for making i'm not a, well a lot of folks are right yeah, for indulging uh, indulging the kitsch to the to the extreme like yeah. you know a million dollar sculpture that looks like children's play-doh is that some you know after that, you get that, the joke is that a good use of resources yeah yeah is that a that again, I think Apparently, it comes back to the question: Could you make that today? To think there's a good use of resources. Well, uh, obviously, I think also though, in terms of Hollywood, eventually the answer for Paul Verhoeven was like, not anymore. Like, not <laughs> yeah. after. <laughs> not so fast, buddy. <laughs> yeah, like you've had a good run. You now we're, now once. we get it. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do Schwarzenegger twice like that. Yeah. Though Total Recall probably. Um, you know Schwarzenegger's you know best film he ever made like probably you know considered one of the best films ever made in the action genre right like yeah. Robocop right still celebrated I think what I appreciate later. about it is humor and I think if you if you uh, move away from the moral discussion for a second mm -hmm. I think humor is always interesting when it hurts a little bit and you can go too far where it's only hurtful and it's not funny, and you can go too far on the other end where it's 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 so gentle that it's not funny anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, he he said they they remade RoboCop and Paul Verhoeven was like they took out all the humor. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because if you watch uh, RoboCop, which is a lot about, uh, it's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, but it's a lot about the the themes of military equipment invading. Yeah, the military-industrial complex. Yeah, but but sure. the military-industrial complex becoming part of civilian life and the which, as we know, is like America today. And yeah. so that's not a funny so it, joke right now. No, no, <laughs> but it's relevant. For sure. Yeah. So, what's the best way to talk about that? And it, I don't know what is the best way because it seems like if you if you're completely preachy and you make a movie that just says military is bad, people are good, etc. It won't. Uh, no, it then won't you go. just you're preaching to the choir, right? And mm -hmm. so maybe this is the type of, um, of well, I often a fine I line agree. that is is can be persuasive on both sides. So I have, I agree, like in uh, probably more than I've ever agreed on the podcast. I often said, you know, I said over the years, humor is a really great backdoor. Like, and I I started out in video art, and no one, no one, zero people want to watch video art. I'm sorry, like video artists, like. No one wants to watch your videos, okay? <laughs> so yeah, like, and I rec yeah. I recognize this as like a a young artist as like, God, like this stuff's like really boring. And I noticed because I'd go to the exhibitions, and like no like one even wanted to go in the room. Like it, you're physically, you're like a magnet that is repelled by it. Yeah. yeah, here's here's a test for you. Like, go to a museum, like look for the video art, and see if there's any. It's probably in a dark room, and see if there's anyone that stays in there longer than. 10, 30 I've, seconds. And I've also, noticed that people will stay in uh, biography films about an artist that is exhibited. So if you have a painting exhibition and there's a 15-minute uh, documentary on the artist in the shots of the studio, 
Yeah. People flock to it. But yeah, but video but, but, uh, to your point, and especially if there's a lot of it in one show, uh, and you do, one of the my pet peeves is if you walk in on a video art piece, there's no status indicator saying the movie's at the beginning or at the ending. <laughs> That's right. And it's, it's such a bad experience. When you would think of UI, it's like you go to YouTube to the page and it's just playing at a random point, but there's no timeline and you can't move, you can't scroll the time. Like, but no not one would yeah. like that website. And when you're in this room, you can feel the discomfort in people's bodies. Like it, it runs through. I'm stressed just thinking about it. My, and I dedicated a lot of my career to this. So don't get me wrong. Like, and that just destroyed me because ultimately, a lot of times, there's great intentions behind the work. The work is not presented the way probably it should. It was never designed for a dark room. That's not what video arts, uh, you know, ideals were. But it's been so it's been packaged in such a way to make it important. It's like a black and white photo that you're supposed to just like ooh and ah. It's it's meaningless now. It's the pretension of the you know the artifice of the museum that supports it. It's no longer the content itself. So I think like if we go back to like Starship Troopers or something like that, I think I think you made a really great point. And ultimately, the point is like it makes a difficult thing easy to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and I and I love that idea of a backdoor on a difficult idea, like making it available, or and even if the audience is the the you know is the content, it's like a Marshall McLuhan thing, for the audience to wake up, you know, it sounds kind of cliche, but it's still there's still lots of room for for things for yeah. for, for content that helps an audience wake up, what, right? The the scary thing about this movie is that it's not an exaggeration. So it, it years ago I did this. Uh, art on Times Square thing where I had my work on those billboards mm -hmm. and there's a um, in the middle of Times Square there's a recruitment station for the military oh, God. and it's it's like a kiosk that's covered in LEDs and it shows these commercials and the commercials are, they're very visual it's just a little bit of text and you see someone like a young soldier being trained and then you see a shot of a battlefield of someone who died, and then the spirit of that soldier goes into the clouds and then beams into the young soldier while he's being trained. <laughs> like, it's, it's so... That's, I think that's what's upsetting about this movie, is that it's so true. Like if it it, was, and it's still, we're still there. Yeah, and, and so I think we're in a bubble where we never see military propaganda directly, but they do all this stuff where they go to forums where people play video games and like, hey, do you want to do this for a living? But shoot planes and shoot at real people. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so and I, I think what's good about this movie, it's not overtly going in as a liberal and saying like, hey, you military people are bad, peace and love, blah, blah, blah. It's like that's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. I wonder, um, you know, we're in the midst of obviously like, in America, we should have acknowledged that the at set, but like an aesthetic, and it really is an aesthetic kind of civil war, like you know, in terms of democracy, like yeah. one one aesthetic for democracy versus another. One is like one is the it's almost this the libertarian American aesthetic of like you know only you can know the truth. And in the pursuit of self, and the other is like, hey, come on, like these democratic ideals, they support the entire world. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, and it's, it's basically so, it's subjectivity so clear versus objectivity. On each side, each side yeah. is so convinced. Yeah, yeah, and I'm 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 struggling to think of a piece of content that's not like, you know, like a documentary that's exposing 
that truth for and waking audiences up to it, right? Like, well, it, it is interesting because this movie is made. It's a it's a fascist looking movie made by a hippie, basically. Like Paul Verhoeven is a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. He's ob- obviously a liberal. Like people question the movie, but he's obviously a hippie who's into yeah, yeah, for sure. nudity and sex. And uh, he puts down the right wing. Yeah, you know, but he's using the, the language of the right wing. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, all those sort of Netflix documentaries that tell you the sugar industry is really bad, the cigarette industry is really bad, mm. social media is really bad. They're all so one-sided that they're designed to just make you more. Uh, but that's my confirmed. point. Like, yeah. they don't and bring us it, together. No, and and what's funny about them is it just enrages you and then makes you feel helpless. The same with Adam Curtis. It's like, wow, I didn't know the system was this bad, but I can't do anything about it. That's the thing. We need a Schwarzenegger to bring us all together <laughs> to see <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> or the Beatles or something. Yeah. I mean, I do think there are some directors out there uh, doing that, like. The Jordan Peele stuff, I think, um, has done that in recent years. We've talked about it a little mm-hmm. bit on the podcast, but stuff like Get Out, yeah. where it kind of uses satire. And by the way, his stuff viewed as like horror movie, not as satire, which again, like yeah. in retrospect, using like using that ten, language. Yeah. yeah, 10, 20 years later, we're going to be like, how could anyone have taken this at face value? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think, yeah, maybe that's the, probably the best comparison to like, uh, Verhoeven today is, is 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 the peel stuff, but yeah. um, I think we need something right now, like at this very moment. <laughs> and I, I'm like, and right now, actually, I guess the entire movie industry is in crisis because it doesn't know how to show movies anymore. It doesn't know how to get us all into one room together. No, it's not and possible. I, I think I think people love TV shows. Like uh, they they like the idea you just watch 20 minutes and then you do something else and then you could do the next episode and then your whole mm. yeah. I think yeah, like the a, TV shows are pretty successful as a format. Hmm. That's part of my interest in doing this podcast, reviewing movies, is also that uh, we're watching things and you're like, would this work today? Would people have the patience to watch this? Would this be too controversial? And it kind of will show you how how fast things change. Well, you should watch this um, Werner Herzog asteroids thing. Uh, so should our, our listeners, if you have... Apple oh, TV maybe that Plus. could be our next uh, next week's episode. I think, yeah, he makes an attempt at unifying in the film, which you you wouldn't expect, um, and it's so funny. Like this is the other thing; most people don't understand. Werner Herzog is like intentionally funny in his films, but still talks about like deep stuff. So he like makes fun of the depth of his work. Yeah, um, and I would put him in like he's the documentarian to Verhoeven's like uh, fantasy sci-fi. Yeah, equal sort of exploration of uh, extreme human behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in the, I, I won't go into it if we're going to cover it on later podcasts, but um, yeah, it's quite a remarkable film. It, how how do you see that film in the rest of his uh, body of work? Um, I think you would. It's like what you'd expect, to be honest with you. But it, it's like because he has this format, which is. And he even says it in the film. And maybe we just talk about it. But like okay. in in the film, he'll be like, you would never, he, he, you'd never see this in film schools. You know, like, yeah. we're going to break the rules here. You know, at one point he's he like, look at this person. He did the same in The Grizzly Man, where it's like, you, you could never see a shot like this in a Hollywood film that's yeah. all engineered. Yeah. So he intentionally breaks that wall. And he, and he does it, obviously, throughout the whole, all his works by like being the voiceover for 
as the director, right? Like, imagine you were watching Starship Troopers and Verhoeven like comes in and is like, "Hey, you notice how we brought that bug in yeah, here?" Yeah, with, the Dutch, the, like, <laughs> with the Dutch Look accent. Look at this crazy space bug. <laughs> <laughs> but the way Herzog does it, um, the way Herzog ground like goes in and out of sincerity, like critique and sincerity and satire is is quite artful. Like he'll also yeah. do this one familiar thing in any Herzog film, you know, Grizzly uh, Man is a great example, is he'll do these portraits where he asks the real person. And he gets a crazy person. He follows a crazy person. (laughs) But it's like, you say crazy person, but in this film too, you'll you'll find what he, his analogy is, is that we're all crazy. I just have to like, I just have to like put the, point the camera at you as you are. Yeah. And you'll see the eccentricity of humanity on display. He did say this thing that, uh, while they were shooting a movie in the jungle, he's talking about how violent nature is, and we think it's all chill and it's actually terrible. Uh, and he said, "It's not that I have more vivid nightmares than other people. It's just that I have the tools to articulate them. But we all have this craziness and this insanity." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like there's this one scene where he's like, "There's this these two guys that are like rogue scientists, and they've become like leaders in their field through accident or whatever." And one of them has, you know, he's like, by his own characterization, he has survived cancer five times. (laughs) But he's like, and on this day, we felt compelled to to ask him to to do a portrait because of, you know, his eccentric attire. And then he like they show this portrait of him and he's dressed like like this bizarre European cowboy. And it's so sincere, but also so hilarious. And and that brings up an interesting point that the idea of. Uh, in storytelling, people identify with people, and so they want a, a single person to solve the big problem. Mm-hmm. And oh, when, yeah. you, when you look at the way the world works, like the way you solve world, world hunger is not like one Santa who flies over and just hands out presents to everybody. It's like a very large systematic uh, involvement of science and business and uh, everything working together in logistics. It's a complicated machine, and it, I think when COVID hit, it was the first time where we were like, will this machine still run? Will we still be able to get food when the, mm-hmm. everything shut down? And it's not a single hero that brought toilet paper to everyone, <laughs> no. you know? And it's not a single hero who will uh, make all the disinfectant wipes for everyone, and it's not a single hero who will find the vaccine, and it's not a single hero who will distribute it. But movies, the same way I think, like, uh, explosions are photogenic and therefore they occur a lot in movies. That's the same idea with the hero. And how it's bizarre that we think like either Joe Biden or Trump will fix everything, this single person. No, I know. I was just watching The Crown on Netflix and uh, there's, it's, I mean, t- not to put it in the popular realm, but I think it's important. Um, there's a scene where they're like, the princess, like, um, where like Charles is talking to his mistress and talking about Princess Diana and how no matter what um, they do, Princess Diana is always going to come out as the hero because of her origin story. And we're always going to, everyone around Diana is going to look like a villain. Yeah, everyone around her is going to look like a villain. Yeah, because people identify with the narrative, not with, the reality, right? Like the narrative is a story we tell over and over again. And that's what Paul Verhoeven is saying. Like in America, we tell these violent stories over and over again. And so, you know, how do we escape that loop? How do we get out of the loop? 
and you know obviously we're yeah because the the, the, the 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 movie takes place like the uh, in school and mili- and there's a military teacher and then the student that was kind of reluctant in the end also becomes the next generation military teacher and he says the same thing come on guys do you want to live forever and then yeah know, they go into yeah war. yeah and we go back into the loop yeah. And so, you know, history is bound to repeat itself, ends up being this message. And I think in that is there's a, both a tragedy and, um, you know, kind of, there's a hopeful story as well, which is yeah. the tragedy is, of course, that we all become our parents. The hope is that we have a second chance, third chance, fourth chance to get this yeah. right. But we're in a way doomed to to repeat the same mistakes. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it, part of what makes us it human. is. If you look at history, there are things that have progressed and there are things that repeat. So. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, Obama used to say, you're lucky if you can just shift the momentum a little bit in yeah. the direction yeah, yeah. Um, of, like, better fortunes. But and One thing I wanted to talk about in the movie is that the acting. And um, it, to me, it's very mysterious, this acting that they do in special effects movies, because maybe that's movie not so much but it's all this acting where you're in a in a virtual stage in a green room and you have to pretend and often when you see star wars you think like the acting is so bad they had so much money couldn't they do it a little better but what yeah what is acting though in this particular film like yeah but but when you think of uh star wars like anakin being a teenager and saying i want to marry this girl i'm good enough and i'm better than my master and he's like overacting and it makes you think like would the movie have been better with, uh, uh, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman doing his <laughs> acting? Or is that really the best way to tell the story? It, it, like, I but get annoyed so, when I so see it. It's so hammy, right? What? Because the, the, the lines, this is... This is of, no, but what I mean is, yeah. are there any big action movies that marry the sort of mm. uh, critical yeah, drama with, with the big, uh, yeah. big action? Yeah, yeah. I think that that people would refer to Nolan, but, you know, trying to do that. Like, um, yeah, you, I, I'm not buying that one. <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying that's what people yeah. would try and convince you of. Because the dialogue, um, the, the 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 writing style of Nolan is a bit like all these explainers, just constant explainers. So <laughs> if I would wake up out of this dream, no, and it, it, it's so obvious at all times. So it's. Uh, I'm trying to think, like 1917 felt pretty convincing. It was like a marriage of, of action and convincing acting. But Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you haven't seen, um, you haven't seen it with uh, Nolan's other uh, Second World War movie. Why am I, why am I missing it? Um, yeah, I didn't want to see it because it seemed like a propaganda film. But uh, Dunkirk. Yeah, Dunkirk. You haven't seen Dunkirk yet. Yeah. Um, I think you should see Dunkirk. A lot of people. Okay. I, I mean, it's definitely one we can look at on the podcast as well. Yeah, it's one. We of did those look at, that, that but we already did see on an IMAX. Screen. We probably shouldn't do all the Nolan films. We did Interstellar. That's enough. But uh, yeah, you're right. Interstellar. There's a lot of exposition. Like this is how this works. But uh, yeah, um, there was the other one uh, with all the dreaming with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, you mean like uh, Inception? Yeah, and I tried to watch it on Netflix. I was like, oh, I'm bored of this. Yeah, it was I mean, Memento is like stuff. I think your critique is most character is 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 like caricatured in his early work, like Memento, which would have come out same time as well, just a few years after Starship Troopers, just to put it in parallel timelines. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but to me, it, uh, it seems weird ranking people, and it, but it seems to me that. Starship Troopers is a far more intelligent film than any uh, Christopher Nolan film. Mm-hmm. 
It just seems to be like a, a higher degree of. Uh, oh, why? Of, I, I don't know how to explain it. It just seems like Christopher Nolan is really obsessed with one layer, and and uh, mm. it's like that galaxy brain meme, and like it seems like Verhoeven is a few tiers above. Like, yeah, I can do the action movie, but I also make fun of it. I think it's like that's where and, my question back, you know, comes back on like if your audience is aware of your of your quote-unquote genius or whatever and i think this we're getting into dangerous dubious territory but like yeah. then that's what then we do. It, can it can it actually be great you know and and yeah. then you get into this like elitist kind of space where there's like you know hierarchies of like awakeness um yeah or yeah. even or intellectual wokeness if you will like well where, it, it seems like like christopher nolan is like Action movies are great, but what if we can make them also intellectually stimulating and put a little science in there? And, like I did, yeah. And, and, and so, so Christopher Nolan is like, I want to create uh, interest in, in physics and science and progress, but in a compelling way. And uh, Verhoeven's like, it's hopeless. Uh, why, why are you doing that? Yeah, Verhoeven is more like action movies are really easy, so let's let's go over the top and. Uh, I Some think it's people. why it's yeah. it's why we've celebrated McDonald's on this podcast many times, which is like, um, you can you really deny that like a hamburger and fries is the pinnacle of cuisine? Like, yeah, yeah. Try, well, and, it, try and make a case it, against it, it. It seems like Christopher Nolan is like the guy who would make Impossible Burger. Like, let's let's make a plant based burger <laughs> that will make the world better. And then Paul Verhoeven is like. Uh, he started a chain of restaurants where they put 15 patties on the burger and and it's called heart attack or something. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I feel like there's a critique of me in this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> except that I, I, I think of myself as a little bit of both and probably yeah. you do too. Like, I, yeah. I think everything's a little better with with a bit of humor. Like, I, we don't take yourself too seriously. Well, it, because no, I, I don't even think that it's a question of better. I think it's more human. So I think... Yeah. Things without humor are not human. I, I think uh, I, even we have a dog now. The dog has a sense of humor too. Like, so uh, Yeah. It, it, like I remember my nephew, he started talking and he has this book with all these fruits and you have to point at the fruit and he says, that's a tomato. That's a cucumber, <laughs> whatever. They learn to talk. And then his first joke was like, I would point at the tomato and he says banana and he thought it was hilarious. And so, <laughs> You know, that that's a part of being human. You can be serious and funny and you're learning, but you can also twist it a little bit. And and that moment where he realized like giving the wrong answer is more interesting than giving the right answer is actually to me sounds more intelligent than someone being like, I know what a banana is. Look at this. Mm-hmm. I know everything. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's an it's an it's a it's a next level note. Like people who are into wordplay, which definitely Kristen and I enjoy wordplay, it's you know, they they do you do come off as pretentious, I think, from time to time because you're like, I don't know. When I was in school, people were always like, "The more you win, the more we lose." Yeah, and I was always yeah. like, "Oh man, like I don't have a good answer <laughs> to that." Well, I th- that. I, I I'm still convinced that the best answer for artists is to do what they really want. So yeah, the more more we all win, the more everyone loses. But maybe it's not that. Maybe in the long yeah, run, but I I, I think if an artist pursues his or own very deep interest it will be more interesting in the end so it'll be more rewarding for the audience mm-hmm. yeah but i think even if you're doing satire just to do satire really well requires listening to the world like yeah. observing yeah. the world because 
bad satire. So like if we come back to Starship Troopers, if Verhoeven had not had any perception of the public and the time and what they were interested in watching, no one would have gone to see a movie in the first place, right? So one of the things you also have to realize is that Verhoeven grew up during World War II and saw bombings as a child. So those were yeah. very intense emotional experiences that have stayed with him. And he said he's had nightmares his whole life. And but he said something like, I think I heard something where he's like, he looked at them even as a child as special effects. Like he couldn't quite grasp the yeah, reality. Yeah, it's probably it. it's probably too too intense to deal with. So you make it fiction in your head. And, and so he must have, having experienced war for real and then seeing movies about war and it being too painful to acknowledge then he, he his whole persona is in this fine line yeah i often talk about this in a corporate context because the layers of abstraction that we invent to make the difficult uh thing to do easy to do is really what he's like interested in right like in corporate culture we're often like extracting more money from people and justifying it through you know, like memes about our survival as a collective um, and that, you know, the economy and the gross domestic product is the most important thing for a nation's success or whatever, right? Like yeah. use all these abstractions or money, like as an abstraction market. of like, yeah. well, actually I'm going to take an hour of your time and and potentially even your body and your <laughs> You're muscle. You're going to do something you hate, but... Uh, yeah, I'm going to take a pound of you, of flesh, and I'm going to give you this new iPhone, right? Like, yeah. so these abstractions help us navigate what is quite like um a difficult moral compromise every day like every day we wake up and the moral decision is obvious because you know we do what the social order order tells us to do to go against the social order would be you know is characterized as the most immoral thing right yeah and there will be violent uh, if if you don't pay your bills there's actually violence against you and you'll be locked up and yeah 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 but all of that is human invention right it's not yeah. like these are things that are true. They are th- these are things that are invented to be true. Anyway, um, not to get super deep on, on on it, but I think like, you know, where war is concerned, it seems like the most obvious one, you know, war and violence um, and in showgirls, like, you know, sexual abuse ultimately and sexual expropriation, they seem so obvious and yet we package them in such a way and we abstract them in such a way that we're like, well, you know, it's kind of, that's just how it is, you know, like that's how, that's how humans are. Right. And like, this is, these these are the parameters I feel comfortable in, you know, like I'll pay you by PayPal, you know, and uh, (laughs) it's all good kind of thing. Um, I'll, you know, vote, vote in the election. And then like, you know, two years later, a hundred million people will die or whatever. Um, anyway, maybe I don't, (laughs) (laughs) that's a good ending. Well, we're in a good election state, I think, uh, as long as like, yeah, uh, we we get through these next thirty days without some weird shit going down. Which yeah. there's bound to be some weird shit, well, but it's not too weird. It's just definitely going to be drama. I can't wait to see the guy get dragged out. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know yeah. how that's going to go down, or the or the sh- the walk of shame. Everyone wants. This. <laughs> Everyone wants. You know, I saw something. I think I can't remember where it was, but it's like I don't want to just see the winner win. But it I want to see the loser lose. It, it goes back to this: uh, the way you see Starship Troopers. Like, it seems like half the country would watch this movie and be like, "Yeah, fuck the bugs, let's kill them," and the other half is like, "Yeah, war is ridiculous, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it's just feeding on itself and whatever." Yeah, so obviously, that's like, exactly the yeah. same with the election. Like, half the country now is like, "Oh, the election was stolen." 
Yeah, I think we discussed that, you know, Chappelle's like um, monologue on SNL was pretty good and that it was like, hey, remember, just because this side won, there's still 100 million people that are feeling really disappointed or 72 million people yeah. and that they, and they're scared and they're afraid and they have families. Um, and so we have to remember that and we have to find ways. That was the same in 2016 when uh, all the, there was an SNL sketch with Dave Chappelle and the, the voting was happening and they were counting the votes and slowly it was getting clear that Hillary was not winning. And mm-hmm. and it was like a bunch of white liberals and they're like, I can't believe this many people voted for Trump. And then Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock walk in and it's like, oh, you you thought there was no racism? You thought there were no racists in the US? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's part of why this movie is interesting. It's like we can make a movie about the ideals of humanity working together and exploring uh, culture and uh, education and etc but that's not the whole story like no, there's that's... a big part of humanity that you can deny and uh, repress but it's there yeah, i mean even if we go and look at art history right the the most celebrated works often characterize you know war and violence and power as the most important values um you know like most of most of the paintings in the world are murderers, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You mean the portraits of uh, powerful yeah. people? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But even of aristocratic people or the people yeah, who well, pay for the art. Art goes think. where money flows. Yeah, and like I've been in shows that were funded by Israeli arms dealers, right? Like uh, I've been in those shows, um, as I'm sure your your work's been funded, I'm certain, and like the, it's hard to avoid in the, the art The one world. thing I find... Uh, troublesome in that discussion is that the institutional critique will point out when money comes from a bad place. Oh, we should have talked about this. And it's very rare for institutional critique to point out when money comes from a good place. We should have talked about this. Like we should have talked about institutional critique in this podcast, but we're almost out of time. Well, ultimately that's what this is all about. Yeah. But when you you take someone like Hans Hacker, he always did exhibitions where he points out like, oh, this money is coming from all these evil people and I'm going to list them here. And it's very rare that he went to the Netherlands and did a show and it was like, hey, this was all publicly funded. The people were paid a fair wage, uh, but nobody came and see the show because there was not much money tied to it. So people don't care. Or like the Safari Land stuff at uh, the Whitney Biennial. Like that was that took on the d- documentarian format, right? Yeah. Um. Like, obviously, I've done institutional critique as satire most of my career. But that is, I mean, it's pretty, It's I don't know if it's rare anymore, but institutional critique, the reason I thought we should talk about it briefly is that it's now brushed off as too easy. Almost like the critique is like, it's like you're critiquing the horse when it's already dead. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, well, I, I started BYOB as... I wouldn't call it institutional critique, but as alternative distribution, which is not critique, but it's a—it's uh, uh, pointing out for, that, uh, yeah. yeah, but by pointing out uh, an alternative, you're also pointing out the flaws of of the uh, yeah the opposite. Yeah, incumbent. Yep. So, but but what I found interesting is that when you do institutional critique outside of institutions, which is something like BYOB or any DIY project, it's ignored because it's not making a lot of money. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so then they're like, oh, it's just like some amateurs and hobbyists having a good time, and it's more of a party than a real exhibition. Yeah, I thought you were going to say like, you know, institutional critique. You know, outside of that is like it's for the audience is too small. Like if you're institutionally critiquing Hollywood, the audience is enormous. Enormous. Yeah. It's like seven yeah. billion people. Yeah. But if your institutional critique is of museum culture, your audience is like you know a few hundred thousand max in the world, right? That understand or care to understand yeah, that there's yeah, a problem, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's so, a funny point of uh, a conclusion that we're like, oh, this is kind of similar to institutional critique, but at a Hollywood scale. <laughs> yeah. And and a lot of people were angry and didn't get the, the critique part of it. But that's why maybe his work didn't work in the Netherlands when you think about it. It's like, what are you critiquing? Like, our, yeah. you know, there is no critique there because we're making great art yeah, house yeah. of ours. But I, I, I often see the institutional critique thing and the... The critique of the art star system and the art market, and then I'm like, both in Canada and the Netherlands, there's a subsidized system, and then there's a lot less energy around the art because of the lack of glamour and excitement of money. The art star system, though, I've been reflecting on this a lot. It's like, there's the art star is dead. Like there is no, I don't think there is really an art star system. Like maybe there is for this tiny aristocratic group of wealthy folks. Um, but as far as like, if let's look at it as a percentage of the world's attention, you know, art is doing a terrible job right now of capturing. But attention hasn't that world. always been? Sure. But like, yeah. but I always um, think that's a great thing. Like, I, I, I've always been into things that other people don't like. So if art is ignored by most of the world, then I think that's a plus. Mm. I'm a populist though. I feel like um, if art could and artists could have a larger share of voice. Like this podcast, if we had, it's a question, like if we had 100,000 listeners instead of you know, a thousand or whatever, I don't know what it is right now, but um, would it be, yeah, I mean, could we do some good with that? I don't know. Yeah. Could we be yeah. Verhoeven basically? Like, you yeah, know, yeah. is there well, some it, way it gets to... tricky because then uh, what is doing good and why do you get to decide what's good? That's true. Yeah, why me? Yeah, maybe so, so that's that's why I'm always in favor of the personal. Where um, if we decide we want to talk about a movie, or we want to talk about uh, different flavors of green tea or whatever, make a podcast about it, it's because we want to do that and not because we have an end goal in mind. And yeah, I, no, you're I, right. It reminds yeah. me like Ellen DeGeneres was accused of like being racist, you know, on set and like creating a toxic work environment. Um, there's like someone who tried to scale up. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> I don't want to become Ellen DeGeneres in that context. Uh, yeah. Maybe you should that, take over that show. That'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just think uh, it's interesting to try and scale. Like, and that's what this, this Verhoeven things made me think about, which is like, how do you scale critique? How do you scale yeah. it to that mass? How do you yeah. do Star Wars on Star Wars? I love that, that idea. Yeah. Um, anyway, maybe that's a good thought to leave our listener with, yeah. <laughs> like some ambitious goals for the week. Yeah. Let's uh, yeah. critique Star Wars on Star Wars. Go out there, raise a hundred million dollars, and <laughs> no one, yeah, you know, no one like. will even know that you're critiquing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. Wow. See you guys next week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. And um, well, yeah, we'll see you next week. Yeah, check out that Werner Herzog film. Let, let's not do a thing on it. Let's do another Werner Herzog. But because Asteroids okay. is out on Apple TV Plus, if you if you have access to it. I just canceled the subscription. We, there was not but you should get it. it with your new phone. It'll give you... Um, no, it didn't. Did it. Yeah, it yeah, did. it will. Oh, but I didn't get any notice. So what happened you was You should get last, an email about it. I know, but last year I bought the phone 
And then I got this email and I signed up for a year of Apple TV and I canceled it a week later because I didn't want to forget and then be silently. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, and so maybe they you, only gave it once. Yeah. And so once I canceled it, then something came on like uh, we, we were going to review a movie. So I was like, oh, can I reinstate it? They're like, no, no. It's like a, you rejected me. I don't Now I don't want you. Oh, interesting. Okay. But I haven't gotten any email of an offer for a free Apple TV. So. Well, this um, this holiday season is going to be really unique because a lot of films that we're going to go to theater, like major oh, uh, yeah. blockbusters, are going to be on the streaming services like HBO Max and Disney Plus and Apple. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. It's a weird I time. Like get, if you're going to spend. I can't get HBO Max on Roku. Our TV is a Roku. Hmm. This I, is the I, new, I read something new that HBO also doesn't want to be on the Amazon channels anymore. So <laughs> it's 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 a it's a war out there. Yeah, this is Starship Troopers meets I don't know like uh, media distribution. television. Yeah, three hundred channel universe. Yeah, but they're really murdering each other. You know what's funny about the three hundred channel universe, like which was the you know yeah the nineteen nineties projection, is that everyone thought it was going to be you know channels on one network, like on one provider. Tell, you know, but one no one ever thought provider. it would. Yeah, one cable provider. No one ever thought it would be across. You know, no, three hundred. Yeah, it's funny. I, I looked up the prices of all the streaming, and if you subscribe to all the available streaming services in the U.S., it's like four hundred and fifty dollars a month. But it's like we're subscribing to individual shows now. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I really want to rewatch Seinfeld. The, the you have to have a subscription to Seinfeld. No, you have to have a subscription to Hulu. I don't no, want I know. Hulu. It's like yeah. basically having a subscription to Seinfeld, yeah. Like imagine uh, if Seinfeld showed up on Netflix, the, the sitcom would be huge. Yeah. Well, maybe this uh, podcast should uh, sell itself to uh, Spotify. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is funny with, with podcasts that there's such a, a low-cost medium. It's not like you need $100 million. And then it really gets boils down to like oh our show is not that interesting <laughs> really well, anyway we appreciate our listeners and yeah, and we don't think of listening. ourselves too we don't yeah we don't think we're that interesting but hopefully you got something out of the, yeah. the podcast and we enjoy spending time with you i enjoy spending time with you Raphael. and yeah maybe that's a good place to and stop please uh, don't take everything too seriously mm-hmm. yeah buy some of my short shorts on our website shouldn't <laughs> okay. I, pl- I should do a capitalist plug <laughs> I did, I told I secretly updated my swag on the website without telling you. Oh, cool! Because uh, they sold they stopped selling my crop top, so now I'm selling okay. short shorts. Okay, uh, I'll check it out. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part too. they're doing their part are you join the mobile infantry and save the world service guarantees citizenship